Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gayatri. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, we are talking to Shankar, who is the creative director in Arup, along with several roles that he is holding in Hong Kong. He talks about his magical journey, starting as a part-time trainer in Chennai to scaling the heights of Hong Kong in IoT and data analytics and various fields. He talks about collaborating and symphony of all the instruments in his own clean and neat way. Hi Sankar, welcome to the Software People Stories and warm welcome from, from Chennai to Hong Kong. Good morning Gayatri, thanks for having me. A pleasure to be joining you. We normally ask all our podcast guests to start what got you started uh, in software. Uh, for me it was more an accidental journey actually. So I did my electrical engineering uh, and the, the bigger challenge is when you do well in your academics then you assume that you're good at that particular stream and you start thinking that that's the place you want to continue. But fortunately for me, just right after a year and a half in engineering industry, I know that I'm, I'm not enjoying it and I'm not good at it. I still remember my first job was Radiant Systems, which we used to training institute. And I was very passionate about teaching. So I went to this institute saying that I would like to teach C++ and Java. And they said, like, do you know anything about it? I said, like, no, I can read from the book and I can teach. It took me almost three to four months nonstop, several visits to this institute, failed uh, the return test, obviously. And then finally, I managed to charm him. And one day he said, okay, why don't you come and talk about a particular chapter into my faculties? And, and if they think that you're good at it, and I will not tell them that you know nothing about software, then you can get your job. And that's how I got my first job. The next day when I went and uh, presented about object-oriented programming, it was only about 12 hours ahead of them. I was fortunate enough to be given that job. They did not realize that I did not know much about software. Wow, that sounds very exciting. See your profile in LinkedIn. This is continuous learning. You have never given a gap per se. There is a be it MIT or be it um, in, is that your origin from learning? Learning is cool. Examination is bad. So for me, any kind of learning that doesn't need to take a competitive exam. I really enjoy that. I, I have taken competitive exam and I do teach. So I'm actually taking up learning and engineering next month, which is about building information modeling. And I have no idea about BIM. So the first time I applied last month, they said that uh, it is better that you don't join this course because we expect people to understand uh, more about BIM uh, before you come to this course. And I said, I have 20 years of experience um, and I'm willing to invest my money. Don't worry about the academic results. I want to be in the course. Went to LinkedIn Learning. I learned a few stuff by myself. And I know enough to talk about it. I, I'm not a master of the details. I can get it. So I think we shouldn't stop ourselves from a topic that you think that you want to learn really for yourself. Uh, you shouldn't bother about what is your background. You can just go and do some preparation work and, and you should go for it. Learning is good and examination not necessarily the cool thing. Yeah, it won't mean anything. Honestly, after all these things, I think every juncture of my learning was more about a challenge. I, I did my MBA in HKUST 
and they had this minimum criteria of uh, getting a 650 as a, your GMAT score. My score was 610 something. Honestly, they gave me a conditional offer in the interview, but my GMAT score was not good. And they sort of sent me an email saying that, okay, your GMAT is not up to a mark, so we can't uh, give you a placement. And I wrote them a long email that it's, it's you who's going to lose out my experience rather than me doing that. And the day after they said like, okay, after we read your email, we want to have you. And I went in there. And again, it's nothing about MBA itself. I enjoyed making friends there. I still remember skipping half of my exam in corporate finance and watching the India-Pakistan World Cup uh, 2011. Those are the things I want to remember. I don't want to remember about a corporate finance A plus or B minus, but I want to remember the, the path and, and joy of learning. So that's how I take my learning. I don't take so much seriously about what is the academic results out of it. I mean, that is the core, right? Are we really learning for the sake of learning? And how are we applying it back in our regular days? Can you share some of your aha moments when you learned and when you were able to connect that in your daily, you know, day-to-day life and say, yes, I, I'm able to make that happen? So I'm, I'm a bit more passionate about soft skills than the technical skills. So my best part of learning was perhaps when I was in sixth or seventh, I don't remember. And I have this very difficult mathematics teacher, like most of the mathematics teacher, they are very harsh. And he was teaching a definition of pi in our class uh, in, in Chennai. And he was saying it's uh, 22 by seven. And, and I was kind of like, why is it 22 by seven? So because it is 22 by seven. And after three times, I still remember I got a slap out of it and asked me to stand on the bench. Uh, because we asked the same question a few times. But at the same year, I remember going on a holiday to my granny's village, and there was this cartwheel manufacturer who was actually writing 22 by 7 on the clay wall. And I went to ask him, like, Grandpa, why, what does this mean? And he gave me three different cartwheels and asked me to measure the starting point, end point, and the diameter, and asked me to just do the calculation. It was always 22 by 7. The best part of the learning is your teacher, one who can inspire you to learn more than what the teacher knows. It's not about what I know and I just share it with you and you just memorize that. That's not teaching. So the the real passion for me on that is the ability for you to inspire students to learn more than what you know. Obviously, we are getting slower and older. So it is that inspiration, the practical applications that can actually enable our students to be more energetic and passionate about that topic. And I continued that. It was a big inspiration for me. Even though I work in software and I moved into management, I've been teaching in Hong Kong since 2005. I've been teaching uh, project management or information security. So when I came to Hong Kong um, early 2000, and um, I wanted to do PMP exam, point of time only Cantonese lessons were offered in Hong Kong. So I sat in this class of Cantonese lesson, looking at the English slide, uh, and I passed the exam. And then I thought that, okay, I need to start teaching in English here because there are a lot of expats here can't go to the same continuous lesson. So that kind of triggered me. And I've been continuing to teaching project management or, or information security more on an application side rather than a textbook side because the textbooks, given our ability to work harder, sincere, diligent, and memorization capacity, everybody can learn it. Everybody can pass it. It's the insights of the practical application versus the textbook. How are you going to draw the fine balance between them, uh, that will make a big difference in your learning. That is what stays with us for a longer period of time, right? In terms Absolutely. of what was I learning and how did I apply it for the framework by itself. Absolutely. Talk to us about the Hong Kong journey. 
from Chennai. You, you were in Bangalore, Karnataka and Chennai for about a few years before you moved to Hong Kong. Yeah. How did that happen and what are the cultural differences in these two? Uh, it's an interesting journey. Again, I was just lucky. So Radiant was a lucky break for a non-software engineer to, uh, you know, getting the first software faculty job. But I was lucky enough that, uh, with some hard work within one month, I was running like seven or eight batches from morning six o'clock to night, 10 o'clock. I become a very popular teacher there. About six months later, I got another opportunity. That company doesn't exist anymore, Silverline. I got a job to be again on a trainer. And they said like, oh, there is another opportunity from Hong Kong. Would you like to take up that interview? And I said, yes, why not? When I attended the interview, that was my first time interacting with any foreigner. So I had all this uh, China, Hong Kong Chinese people in the interview room. It was the very first time. And they asked like, what do you know about Hong Kong? That was my very second question. And it was an instant answer for me that it's Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. Because that's all I knew about Hong Kong. Honestly, in all honesty, I, I did not know anything about it. I grew up watching 36th Chamber of Shaolin or Enter the Dragon. I didn't know anything else. It was a sincere answer for me and they laughed at my face. And there was not many questions after that, only a couple of questions and they said like, thank you. And I thought I, I, I basically flunked it. Three days later, I still remember that HR had, um, she called me, she said like, come over to Hong Kong to see more than Jack Kitchen and Bruce Lee. Uh, that's how my Hong Kong journey started. And it's 20 years now, it's home for me. In terms of culture, I think definitely there is a very big difference in culture between the way Indians and, and I'll say Hong Kong Chinese versus mainland Chinese, they are very different culture. It's a bit more subtle. You don't get to hear a lot of things. It's always about a very few words, which is uh, very indirect. They have this culture where there's nothing direct. So you'll always got to go find the inner meaning by yourself based on your judgment and, and the people and etc. Again, I shouldn't be talking about much about the Indian culture because I've not worked in the last 20 years there believe that we are at least a bit more expressive vocabulary as well as our facial expressions you can't find both of them with the hong kong chinese you won't find a reaction in their face happy or sad and you won't find too many words to express their feeling as well it will be very crisp uh, and i think that takes more time for you to understand what exactly are they talking about and what do they really mean about it so it takes time for you to gel with the culture to understand what exactly we are looking at. How does that impact software development? You were a technologist and a software engineer when you went to Hong Kong, right? How, how does that really translate to being, a software, being in different, I don't even want to call it as countries, it's almost two different civilizations, right? How does that really uh, translate to our... It, it is challenging. But it also gave me an opportunity. Almost like for three and a half years, I was working in software development with Jockey Club here. But what I realized was that it's so difficult to find the requirements of what exactly do they want with minimal expression and especially the documentation is not that great. But that actually also guided me towards my management career because I thought that that is the gap that I can fill in better than doing a coding. So I moved up quickly from a software side into a bit more system analysis and then project management. And I thought I'm able to add more value there because they were really lacking this good communication between multiple teams and expressing it. When I got a mega project opportunity, I, I thought I can move into a project management role, relinquish from a technical side into more on project management, which seems to be work very well for me at least. Uh, but having said communication skills, Project management is a lot more cultural alignment. The communication is not just about the word, it's about 
aligning to the culture to express according to that cultural dependency. And that is where most of the time is so important. Wherever it is, it is always, uh, always the, the culture. I was just talking to my, my, one of my own colleague yesterday, who is basically an American, and we were doing a project in Mumbai airport, in which was done by Hong Kong engineers and our Indian counterparts. And he was saying that, oh, my job was just basically to translate the English to English between the Indians and the China, Hong Kong Chinese. Somehow they were talking face to face and the same English was interpreted in multiple ways. So my job is just basically English to English translation. Wow. <laughs> English to English translation, is it? One of the things that you spoke about as a mega project, right? What, what prepped you for taking that uh, mega project? Many of us feel that unless we have done this in the past, we always have this risk averseness to pick it up. The traditional wisdom or traditional, uh, when you see biographies, they always say, when there's a big challenge, just grab it with both the hands and then move on. Uh, it's instinct and you got to be a little bit more crazy and you shouldn't worry about the results. I, I don't know, I mean, uh, I know that most of the successful people say like, you've got to minimize the risks along the way. Uh, it works for some people. For me, I think it's always been a gut feel and, and a zeal to do something new and, and try it out. And somehow the, the failure doesn't appear. And I've failed many times, but the failure doesn't appear when I want to make the choice. So I'll probably give an example of this particular scenario. We were working on an immigration project, which is basically what Bangalore Airport is trying now to do automated clearance. So Hong Kong was one of the pioneers in this. We launched that in 2004. So I was actually a project manager integrating uh, whether it is the electrical, mechanical equipments, like intelligent motors, infrared sensors, biometric passport readers, or facial recognition fingerprint. Back in 2004, they were like really cutting edge. You seem to be like working on a James Bond movie, working with all these kind of things. That fired me up saying that I'm going to take it. I know nothing about it, but I'm going to take it. And let's see, learn along the way, because anyway, anybody around me knows actually more. Not really, I took it. But what was interesting for me is that about a year in that project, we had a subcontractor from Singapore who basically sued my company, my ex-company, uh, in, in a hotel, and we had no clue. They basically told the media that there is USB time bombs put on your server, which will stop the entire immigration system of Hong Kong on the 1st of July. Uh, and it was early April, they actually gave that media uh, interview and we had no clue. And I still remember we got a call and I said like, I have no clue whether there's a USB stick plugged onto the, the mainframe server behind the computer. So we had to send somebody to the, the one of the border control points, which, which was a trial project. And they went, took the whole effort to look behind the computer, there was a USB dongle. And whether we want to take it or we shouldn't take it, we had no clue because the company said that your system is going to stop. If you remove it, it will stop immediately. It was literally like a James Bond movie for us. So we had about 12 weeks, close to 12 weeks time. We were given by immigration department, obviously we are the main contractor. And we were said like every responsibility will be on your shoulders. Your company will be doomed if you can't fix it properly whether you pay money to them or whether whatever way, but we can't be impacted. So my, my founder looked upon around us like saying like, what are we going to do? And we got a friend from Russia through contacts of contacts. And he kind of within two days hacked this USB dongle and said that I can just reset this timetable from 1st of July to whatever date you want. But our lawyer said that that's actually a breach of contract. If you do that, that's a breach of contract. You'll end up paying more. And you, anyway, the, the sword is hanging over your head because immigration wanted that USB dongle to go away within two months. So that actually put us back in table. And my founder was like quite an elderly man, 65 years old, 
he was asking all of our executives, what are we going to do? And I still remember, I don't know, I'm stupid enough to say like, I'll fix it. Uh, and he said like, really? I said like, how? I, no, I don't know how now, but I'll fix it. Give me some kind of uh, resources and we will do what we can do. And he said, okay, you get everything that you want, but I want this to be remote uh, in a proper way. And the same night, I remember flying to Bangalore, Chennai, Hyderabad, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, in the next three days doing interview in every coffee day shop in Bangalore and Hyderabad, recruiting people just on the street. <clears throat> Through again, a lot of friends, references, and with some support from immigration, within the next seven days, we had about 28 people in Hong Kong, uh, all picked up from really from whatever gut feel. I was doing it. I was given a free hand. I was just signing employment letter right on the street in coffee day shops and immigration was approving them. And the next almost 11, 10 to 11 weeks, we actually slogged 24 hours, literally. And we actually fixed the entire thing. We removed the USB dongle. We wrote a complete source code from scratch with bucks, of course, but it can work. And this USB dongle was removed on the 30th of June. I remember, we remember that on, on that midnight, all the senior executives of the government were waiting to make sure the system will work or not work. And we were very stressed, but it worked. Uh, but after that, it was more interesting that, that the company sued us, that we actually stole the source code, which they never handed over to us. So I was actually in the court for four years, being a technical witness, explaining what is a source code to the judge, what is a binary code, and how do you compile a source code or a library, and how can you not reverse engineer? It took me four years. The only winners in that was lawyers who made a lot of money from us. But it was fun. The company was very kind of rewarded because we went through the right way. Uh, it could have failed for all the reasons possible, but I don't know, believe uh, in your gut and, and some kind of passion, then it will work for you. What a fantastic and It is also a story of resilience, right? Resilience that it will, things will happen and creating the right kind of an ecosystem around you in terms of right set of people doing the right thing. I think important is once you do the right thing, then you can confidently go in front of a legal system or anybody to defend your integrity. Absolutely. I think that, that sounds, sounds of character. Yeah. And that's where the project management is so important because in that project, we had people from Malaysia, Singapore, India, and there was a couple of Taiwanese and with the Hong Kong colleagues of mine, it was a very difficult culture. Uh, we had a lot of uh, good veggies, or very authentic vegetarian guys from India. The language, the culture, we had only 11 weeks. We didn't have time to gel around or doing a board party. Everything was just at work. It was a good experience for us. Very, very cool. I see you uh, being in a lot of the conferences talking about IoT, Internet of, uh, Internet of Things, as well as applications from a construction and overall infrastructural part of it. How did that happen from a project management to how did that lead to digital happen? So I, before the IoT itself was becoming very popular back 2010, 11, something like that. So as I said, my first project for immigration was in 2004, which had a lot of sensors. We, we did facial recognition in 2004. We did fingerprint scanning. We did all kinds of sensors to understand people tailgating, etc. And actually, that, right after that, I did several projects and sensors using laser sensors for understanding human behavior. If you use Metro, I haven't tried Chennai Metro. If there is a platform screen door with the train, then it's better. But if you don't have a platform screen door, there is usually a big gap between the platform and the train door. And there is always the kids or even the elderly people, their legs get trapped. So I developed 
using laser sensors to understand a leg or a high heel versus a, versus a newspaper or a basketball or other trash that may fall down or a cup. So we used to do these kind of sensor-related applications back 2005, even before the IoT terminology came into place. So it was much more a natural shift into IoT. That actually took me to quite a lot of different kind of applications, understanding tree branches falling into the railway tracks, which actually affects the operations of railways. So we use sensors to detect how the tree branches will behave, how it will fall. Uh, we did anti-collision for trams. Uh, we did then use sensors for, it's like an island that produces electricity for entire Hong Kong, but due to the environmental protection regulations, they have no perimeter, which means some of the people from, let's say, neighboring countries will come by boat into this island, and they will take away the copper, stainless steel, and everything, and they will just go by boat. And they had no security. But the major problem was it was 11 kilovolt substation. So there was a real fear that people would get electrocuted, and there is a loss of life. And there was no technology available to understand the human intrusion into this and especially the island had uh, cows and goats and birds flying. So you need to differentiate. A video analytic will not work in a completely outdoor environment during summer. It just won't work. Or in a rainy season, when you have a band of water, the camera cannot even see it. So that's the time we said that we could use laser sensors and we could actually write our own algorithm to define how a human being will look like, how he will crawl, how he will walk, run, as compared to a cow and a goat and a dog. We actually created this kind of uh, pattern recognition algorithm using sensor on edge, which is uh, basically a Raspberry Pi and so on. So we did these kind of projects back quite a long back, 2008, 2009. And so it was a natural shift for me in IoT. And then from there, we moved on to more on business. I started reading new businesses, creating new kind of concepts uh, and, then, and running businesses. So right now, in the last two years, I, I moved to Arup. Arup is a, a design engineering firm. So Hyderabad Airport, uh, Mumbai Airport, Bangalore Airport, we did a lot of structural design for that. The Hong Kong Macau Juhai Bridge is designed by Arab, as well as the Beijing Olympic Stadium or Marina Bay Sands. Those are all, most of them. And of course, our very popular project, Sydney Opera House, is designed by Arab, actually. It's more than 50 years now. For me, what was very interesting is actually um, the construction is only going to be increasing. We are about 8 billion population now. And we will become 11 billion population, maybe in half the time that we, it took us to become 8 billion. So what it means is we need a lot more infrastructure. But if you look at construction industry, in terms of innovation and application of technology, we are just better than agriculture. Every other industry is better than construction industry in application of technology. But even agriculture is becoming much more smarter these days than construction. So the problem here is it's a regulated industry. So they believe that there is no competition and there's no need to apply data in their processes and engineering design practices. And this is where I think is there are a lot more value to apply the real data, possibly some kind of intelligence. I won't claim that they are AI. There are very few AI in the true AI in the market. There are a lot of hype and less of truth about AI. It's just not simply easy for you to come up with an AI model in six months' time and say that I have an AI that can solve the entire problem of the world. So that's what motivated me to move move from IoT into application of data and then looking into what could be a future intelligence that we can build. So we are working on quite a few initiatives like facades, uh, understanding facade defects, understand earthquake seismic modeling, and understanding smart buildings. 
So we are developing a lot more solutions or data analytics solutions on top of the data and leave the IoT, which is basically data collection mechanism, to, to really the contractors. So that's what I focus on my day-to-day job now. Very, very different from what I was expecting. I thought you would start with IoT and that journey. I think you were speaking six, seven years earlier, where every sensor had its own IPv4 address. And then that collected the raw data and then it was processed back in. This is almost like pattern recognition of a cow versus person. It's almost like uh, we, we keep talking about pattern recognition at a human level, right? Uh, using sensors, using how eyes and nose patterns, I think. Yeah, I was kind of lucky and fortunate to have a good team, to be honest. <laughs> okay. I was only a creative director. Most of the implementation was by done by the team who wanted to go and try it out. Shaka, that's how it works, right? It is uh, as long as leaders give the uh, empowerment to the team and uh, create that environment for everybody to uh, develop and creative freedom. I think that is the most important ingredient. It differentiates between uh, good to great companies. And definitely technology field needs that as compared to maybe an engineering industry. If you are a master's in engineering, you are better than a bachelor's engineering. Uh, and if you're a PhD in engineering, you're better than a master's in engineering. But for technology, you, you don't need, you can be a dropout and you can be super good Python programmer and you can still do stuff. So that is the biggest, I would say, advantage from a tech industry where you can be just good at one thing that you know about. It's not about, uh, there, there are no regulations in, in tech industry. Very true. In fact, one of my, one of the previous speakers, Tiago, was talking about how he has started his career in AI and ML, reading about the peers, uh, the founders of AIML, and then he, once he started publishing papers, he was right in front of those same authors and standing on their shoulders. I want to be very clear to say that I am standing on somebody who in somebody's shoulder, but I also want to give my shoulders to somebody else. Absolutely. So that is how that multiplicative curve. That is how it works, right? To the technology. That, that's totally true. That's absolutely true. In fact, we, we had a panel just, I think, day before yesterday in Hong Kong Computer Society, and I was talking about uh, AI. One of the questions was, which one is more important? Is it the AI skill or is it the domain expertise skill, given a choice? And, and I don't think it is possible for us to have both in one person. It's, it's just very, very rare. And, and so for us, from considering our perspective, I would rather have my domain expert and trying to make sure that they understand the value of data. And then we can find a programmer to convert that into it rather than teaching structural engineering or a civil engineering or a seismic modeling to a Python programmer. It, it doesn't work that way for us. What I've done is actually right now this is happening that I've set up an AI task force. We, we, we call it as alpha team. The, the fresh grads will come out as engineers from all the right universities. We basically tell them, you define the problem what you could solve using data. So one of the problems that we are choosing is actually two problems. One is plastic pollution in ocean or rivers. Could we use satellite imagery to understand a better view about the plastic and where these ways are flowing from where they are coming in? That could actually help the government to form policies uh, accordingly. So this is one of the problems that we, we are working on now. And the, the other problem is landslide monitoring, which is quite common in many of the countries where we, we already have recorded a lot of data from landslide monitoring, but we don't know what are the conditions that that particular landslide monitoring happened. What we are trying to do right now is trying to develop a model about hundreds and probably thousands of landslide 
monitoring data collected in the past and then see what kind of combinations that this landslide monitoring happened and then could we create a model for that so we are trying to use very practical use cases that is necessary for our safe living yeah, we, we don't have anything to do with marketing or retail and, and those stuff i've done that personally myself before joining her i've done people you can call behavioral analytics tracking your mobile phones using your wi-fi data using your bluetooth data and your demography and android phones as you can imagine that uh, they are less less stringent on their security so we could actually track your mobile phone as long as your wi-fi is just on that's good enough and we can ping it and we know the unique id of your mobile phone within 250 to 350 seconds uh, and then we use the pattern to know that Gayatri is in Gusi shop at 10 o'clock in the morning and that next day evening she's coming to the same shop then we integrate that into a dynamic crm to send a marketing based on like Gayatri is a indian woman she likes Gusi and then could we send her a message which is Gusi we call this as personalization of mass marketing because mass marketing is generally sending a 10 dollar pizza hut coupon for everybody but we want to mass it but we also want customize it and that's where the iot is very valuable understanding the data connecting that with your business and creating a new insight for the business people in an automated way very well put sankar what you are carrying is that not only from a behavior analytics or uh, and talking about seismic and landslide one of the things that elon musk he says our human potential is so high that you would rather spend in uh, launching ourselves to mars or having clean energy something like what you're talking about seeing how bad plastics are where is it originating making your oceans cleaner and making livelihoods um, safer i think those are really worthy of our time and creating a purpose for your team yeah. i think that creates a big link to say okay hey this is why i am working for it and they see the change happen absolutely i think that is exactly what a leadership main objective is setting a purpose beyond a dollar that people will feel satisfied with what they have achieved you're a hong kong uh, iot alliance member right part of the board of directors it's it's actually a non-profit organization uh, a few friends of mine we founded that before the whole idea is to spread the awareness of iot and how to use it because uh, many of the traditional industries like property or or insurance Uh, they don't understand iot as effectively uh, and so we we just do it completely on voluntary basis to share about what are the iot stuffs and bringing in corporates to be part of this memberships so that we can educate uh, in terms of not only iot but also the cyber security risks that arises from iot is equally uh, an issue so those are the things that we do and as part of this we take up some research for the government so right now we are we are doing research on 5g and iot actually so we are doing this kind of research with our own you know execs who are all doing volunteering works so we do research on what's the impact of 5g really on iot on smes the small and medium enterprises what applications can they really do it those are the things that we take up as research and advise the government uh, on this and you know the only ones there are several entities so we just contribute this we also partner with like catalonia is actually a province in spain so we partner with catalonia research institute on iot with mainland china with taiwan with other countries around there so we keep learning what are the startups coming around with iot what are the applications that they are doing and how good or bad out of it so we learn from this and we try to spread this awareness to the commercial entities here sounds like you're almost like an orchestrator of uh, the new technologies 
I mean, sharing what it is happening and making the fulcrum of all the innovations that are happening, right? Is that how to understand uh, your alliance across geography? That's, that's true. So it's, again, it's just for fun. We don't take it like too seriously, but it's more like a fun that we, we don't feel the effort on it. So we do conduct quite a lot of uh, conferences, smart oedic conferences, which is very big in Hong Kong. So the conference organizers usually hand over the IoT element or the session, whole session to us. So we select the speakers, we, we come up with the right topics, right panel and etc. So it's for us, it's just more fun and joy and we can learn in the process. Agree, agree. I think that that, that is a, a very, very cool part of being in technology, right? You can, uh, you can enable, you can contribute in some areas and you can be an active participant in another. Absolutely. I know we are off time. So I wanted to ask you one last question. Yeah, if there is one thing that you wanted to share or a few things that you want to share to our listeners across the globe. I'll, I'll basically say it is collaboration, which is the most important thing. And I can share this in conference as well. This happened with the, my own personal experience. It was, I think, three or four years before. I have a boy. His name is Adi, and uh, he's a drummer, actually. So he was supposed to perform in a school uh, along with his band, and he was showing the, the music uh, that he's going to play to me and my wife. And the music was very soft. It was more like a jazz. And as a, as a very um, you know, enthusiastic father, as always, you want your kid to shine more on the stage. I immediately asked him, like, there is no scope for a drummer in this music. Why is that you're, you're trying to do this? Instantly, he responded to me that it is not about an instrument. It's about the song that comes out at the end, which needs everybody to play according to the song, not according to the instrument. And which is super true for project management and in IoT, because every organization, you always have people who want to be shining as a star. But at the end, the core objective will get defeated because they are competing among themselves. They are not focusing on the objective. So it is always about the harmony of the song that is more important than the instrument that you are playing or your role. Uh, I think that's what I will give it as a takeaway. So very well put, Shankar. It's unbelievably how nicely it connects, right? There's no I in a team. A team. And how, uh, how do you ensure that there's collaboration and there's no competition or there's no uh, conflict? within the team. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Shankar. And oh, thank you so much. Happy to have this conversation. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Cheers. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.